This is a HeadGum Podcast. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Inside Voices. I'm your host, Kevin T. Porter. My guest today is Rishi Kesh-Hirway. So a little background, Rishi is a musician. That part is very important. Rishi is a musician. He's a composer. He's written scores for TV shows, movies, documentaries, video games. He's in bands like The 1AM Radio and Moors, a hip-hop collaboration with actor Lakeith Stanfield. Making music is the way Rishi enters the world, but you may know him best from his podcasts like Song Exploder or The West Wing Weekly. This is the funny thing about guest intros and credits. They're supposed to go in order of recognizability, not importance. And those aren't the same thing. We'll get to all that tension later. But first, we gotta get Rishi to name this episode for us. Rishi Keshirway, how would you describe your own voice? You knew I was going to ask I this know. question. I didn't know that it comes first, though. Yeah. Vocal fry is a double standard. And I would say my voice is uh, one where I get all the benefits of being a man. <laughs> and, Go on. And I don't, have to, uh, I don't have to suffer the negative repercussions that women do for the exact same thing. So it's basically, it's like, it's, it's, uh, I would describe it as male vocal fry in the, just in, in the most privileged way. Hmm. Rishi Keish Hirway has a privileged voice is the name of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) I actually disagree with you though, in the sense of, I don't think your voice is vocal fry in the sense that you mean, because I know what male vocal fry sounds like. And it's more like that. (laughs) Don't you think? Like it is truly when the air escapes. I think of vocal fry as as like the little bit of sandpaper grit. I don't think so. I think that's a, texture, isn't it? <laughs> truly. Well, that that's what I'm hoping for. But you experience your own voice through that lens. I always thought of that as that. That's what. Yeah, I always thought that that, that counts as vocal fry. I think, and you know, when 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 people are accused of having vocal fry, I'm like, I don't mind that. Doesn't, right, because it's like, that's, those are my people. Nice. That's yeah. my community. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think uh, I think you have thousands and thousands of listeners who would disagree with that. I don't think anyone who listens to a Rishi Kishirway podcast would say, oh yeah, the vocal fry guy. <laughs> I don't think they would describe you in any sense like that. Um, I might be wrong, but I don't think that's the case. I see, but I thought that was only because I'm a dude. No, because there is male vocal fry, and I could name five people, and I won't, who do have it. Mm. 
I can name friends of ours that have it, and I won't. But, okay. But even even just then, I had a little bit of vocal fry there. And it sounds nice. But then it goes out, you know, this is kind of like this. Like, that's the vocal fry. <laughs> Sir, you just have a low, like, tenor. You have a low timber to your voice. It's so smooth. People give you compliments all the time about your voice. And none of them say, I love the way you fry that vocal, baby. <laughs> none of them are saying that, right? <laughs> um, no. You've never gotten any feedback about vocal fry. This is a self-imposed label. I No, I haven't, but that's because only women get... I, I think, no, and for sure, misogyny is a part of that. And sexism is a part of the fact that women do get that criticism more. But I don't think it means that you should get it and you don't. And you're somehow like exempt because of the patriarchy. I think it is like, no. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll tweet out from the official show account, the men who do have vocal fry <laughs> and like do a comparison, a B test of right. your voices and their voices. Okay. I, uh, I always think of vocal fry as yeah. Like the fine grit sandpaper. Hmm. So maybe Rishi Keshire has a finely gritted voice. Rishi Keshire has a sandpapery voice. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Sure. That's it. Sandpapery. Sandpapery. I wanted to have that, you know, what felt like gravitas or something like that in in my voice. I wanted to to give it some of that. So one person whose voice I love and and, and you know has a podcast is Alec Baldwin. His podcast is called Here's Here's the Thing. And I just remember just being like, oh my God, the way his voice is amazing. I want it. I wish I had the, a voice like that. And so I actually downloaded an episode of that podcast and then brought it into Pro Tools. And then, you know, and I took some voiceover that I'd done for Song Exploder and I just set, I used the basis of Alec Baldwin's voice to try and figure out where I wanted, you know, which, where to EQ my voice to bring out those little bits of sandpapery, gritty, vocally fry kind of those flecks, like, like, like flecks of like distinguished flecks of gray in somebody's salt and pepper hair. So I did that. And then here's a funny thing. So then later when the West Wing Weekly was starting and I, and I realized I could not edit and mix that show as well as do song exploders the workload was too much i was looking for someone to mix the show for us and you know we would give them a paper cut and they would put the pieces together and a paper cut being a um, transcript yes a transcript with all of the stuff cut out all the nonsense that's just too nonsensical to actually include in the episode because that's how we would do it anyway the the person who applied and uh one of the People who applied and the person who ultimately got this job is Zach McNeese. And on his resume, it was that he was the mixer for Here's the Thing. Oh, perfect fit. And so I was like, oh my God, I actually made my vocal settings based on your mix. What a compliment to him, too. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I guess you get the job. Yeah, give me the Baldwin. <laughs> yeah. So that was really funny. I had made a record in 2011 and I had with it for about a year and then um and i had also finally started to do the thing that i originally really moved to la for which was scoring film i had scored a feature in 2011 that came out in 2012 and then in 2012 i scored a movie that came out in 2013 and so it was really in that moment where i was like i had done two movies and i was like okay maybe now i can kind of evolve into this chapter of my career and i still wanted to make records too but at that point I didn't I didn't have new songs. I hadn't hadn't written anything because I'd been focused on making these 
film scores and it takes me a really long time to make make a record you know like the gaps between records just keep getting longer and longer too like between the first album and the second album was like two years and then then three years and then four years you know and so it was going to be a long time before i made something again so i i had to either start making a new record or find a new film to score and i was in a position where neither of those things were going to come very easily or readily and so i thought okay well what else can i do this year and the idea for song exploder had been kind of floating in my head for several months before that um i started getting into podcasts around 2012 and i really liked the format and i really loved the two podcasts i was basically listening to i guess the first podcast i had ever listened to was the ricky gervais podcast back in 2006 mm-hmm you know when that was the first time i'd ever heard the the word and uh and i would download them and i would listen to them while like you know while i was moving i just moved to la and i was trying to um you know get my room together <laughs> and and in my apart in the apartment i was renting so i listened to those then but then i didn't really listen to any for a while actually at, at some point somebody had burned a bunch of this american life episodes on cd for burned <laughs> yeah and so i well if it's cd they could only put an episode and a half on there, maybe. They would be. It would be like one episode per disc. Yeah. And the and the gift was actually like a wallet of you know of of like twenty four discs or something like that. And so, on tour, I would listen to those. And you know, it was like it was like this American Life on demand. It was basically a proto experience. Yeah. So I, I just I was into the format, and I had had this idea for song exploder and and i thought okay well this is this is this moment in my quote-unquote career where there's kind of a lull here and i i could kind of try and push and see if there's a movie that i could score or try and write songs and see if there but who knows how long that will take what's the thing that i can do right now and i I thought well this might be a good time for me to try and also look at that project and see if that's something that's viable so I asked my friend Jimmy Tamborello, who I had toured with. He's in he he's in the postal service, but he also has a solo project called Dentel that I'm a huge fan of. And the one AM radio and Dentel had toured together and we'd become friends. We'd known each other for a while, but we'd become genuinely become friends at that point. And so I asked him if I could interview him um about a postal service song. And he said yes. And then I and I just I didn't know what it was gonna be, but I went over with a you know, with like my laptop and like my Pro Tools interface and plugged it in and he you know we we sat in front of his computer and he showed me the different parts from the postal service and he just talked to me about how they were made and it was great and we we talked for like an hour and then I came back and I edited down what he said to about 8 minutes and put it together and that was like the pilot episode when i hear you tell that story it kind of strikes me and again this is sort of the aesthetic of your shows too it kind of strikes me as an act of humility as much as it is an act of creativity to do a show like this uh, because it is so in service of the subject and the music rather than, I mean, you're a part of it and you do the bumpers and obviously like you produce and mix it and it's your thing. Although not at first, actually. Oh, is this true? Yeah, actually, actually, if you want a clip, hold on. Yeah. (laughs) My name is Jimmy Tamborello from the Postal Service and you're listening to Deconstructed. So today we're going to listen to the first song from Give Up, which is called The District Sleeps Alone Tonight. So so Jimmy, I had Jimmy do the intro, and the idea was that every episode, the artist would do their own intro and outro, and I, you would literally never hear me. Mm. 
We put out one record on Sub Pop, and that came out in 2003. And now we're at the 10 year anniversary, and we're gonna do like a deluxe reissue, and we're also going on tour this summer. Okay, so thanks a lot for listening. So in 2013, Rishi creates the podcast Song Exploder, a podcast in which musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. Over the years, the show has featured artists like Lord, Janelle Monet, Bono, Yo-Yo Ma. Song Exploder is immaculately produced, the aesthetic opposite of something like a rambling, improvised comedy podcast or a three-hour-long chat show. The episodes are cut lean. Part of this austerity is the fact that Rishi himself, even though he's the host, is barely in the show. To me, it was the logical extension. Like, like actually, the, the fact that I'm in the show has its benefits now. I realize, you know, there are, like, economic things, you know, for advertising and stuff that, you know, you, there are things that you need somebody else to record. But all the reasons why I'm not in the show during the body of the episode we're all i was just taking that to its logical conclusion which is that like you don't need me if i can get the artist to do it then it you don't need it. you know i'm just i'm just building the canvas and the and and the paint on the canvas is all all comes from the artist so when when people in comedy or people do chat shows who are comedians have other comedians on it is a sort of low-key way of saying we're the same right like you and i we're just people talking and then it creates this effect on in the listeners minds of oh i guess this person and that person are the same even if the actual accomplishments couldn't be more different but you being a musician hosting a show about other musicians it would have been so easy i think for a person with um with more ego and less humility to do in a way where it's like, tell me, a fellow musician, you know, people like us, how do we do it? How do we make the songs? And instead you went this route that was so much more craftsman-like and, and, and served the other person the song way more than you could have. Was that ever a part of it? Did you ever think about the idea of humility when making those choices? I was thinking of it more from a perspective of craft, like, or, or really of design. You know, my day job had been graphic design that was what i studied in school and i and i studied design in school because it felt like it felt right to me you know it was a way of putting things in order and presenting them in a way that felt like it served the the audience you know in a in the best way possible like it deepened the meaning of the information and it and it was beautiful at the same time you know that was something like like with the 1am radio and all and all this other stuff that that i was doing you know like i would do besides making the music the 1am radio really felt like my creative output because it was not just the music and the lyrics that i was writing but i was also designing all the artwork and taking the photographs that it was you know it was sort of it felt like wholly me and i was thinking of this more like just like what's the right delivery mechanism for it you know like what's the ideal way to hear this story and i just thought well i have nothing to do with this story so why should i be a part of it and i really was afraid i i I think it was conscious in the sense that i i was afraid that somebody would hear it and think that i was trying to somehow raise my profile and and that felt too obvious and and too craven or something because i could also see on the other hand there was this other path where there was a more perfect version of 
the show that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't have a host where it is just like, it's like, I'm just there to design the canvas and put it all together and put it out there. So that was, it was, it was more about that, about trying to be a perfectionist about what the design of the show was, what the container was. And that container was best made without me. And I wanted to do something that felt, you know, different from what I'd heard before. And also I knew that I was not Mark Marin and I wasn't Terry Gross. Like there are interviewers who I really love and really admire. And so there were sort of two considerations. One was the ego thing, but also the other other was not wanting to expose the amateurish quality of my interviewing skills because of my limited exposure to podcasts. And, you know, and I don't listen to that many interview shows. The format that I was thinking of it more like in terms of the polish and the feeling of it, I was thinking of documentary film. And in documentaries, the camera is pointed at the subject and they're a talking head and they tell their story. And that was more of the format that I was chasing for Song Exploder. If you do it like that, you maybe you'll hear the director or the interviewer, you know, say something off mic sometime, you know, because something happened and you just have to do it that way. But for the most part, it's just going to be the subject. Do you think of it as an emotional show? I like to, I mean, I hope, hope it is. Because you're not asking people necessarily explicitly emotional questions or vulnerable questions. Like I know I read in your autobiography, this is actually about your dad or whatever the case may be. You're asking them about their creative craftsmanship, but it often leads to emotional places. And I, I think that's such an interesting way to get to that same destination that it might be, even if you were to just ask the direct question. Well, I think if you ask the direct question, especially to some, to an artist whose job it is to like stir up people's emotions by, you know, diving into their own um, and, and kind of like utilizing their own emotional experiences, you might, you know, they might shut, shut down or they might just give you something that's more of like a canned response. But if you can come at it kind of sideways and you talk about the specific wording of one line of lyric and you're like, why did you say it like that? Like, where did that line come from? That kind of opens the door for them to talk about what the work is that they do and where that came from. And then suddenly now they're talking about something really personal in a way where it's easier to to go at it from the perspective of process than to just go straight on and be like, what is this song about? Okay, now here's the tension. Rishi didn't make any of the songs featured on Song Exploder. And Rishi didn't make The West Wing, the subject of his recap podcast with Joshua Molina. They're other people's properties. When you make anything centered around someone else's work, even when it's as successful as Rishi's podcasts are, it's difficult to feel fully, creatively satisfied in that. Because at the end of the day, it's still about what someone else did. When I started Song Exploder, it was a little bit easier in some ways to deal with emotionally because I was like, this is, you know, there are some people who make podcasts as their art. That is their work. That is their primary form of expression. And that wasn't the case for me. I was like, I have, I make music. And and so I'm making this podcast. And so I could divorce my sense of creative ownership, you know, that I could feel like I'm just making this thing in service of other artists and that's fine. I've got that on one side and I do my, you know, my music career that I've had for 10 years on the other side. 
and that was fine. But then, but the thing that's changed is over the years, you know, like Song Exploder has become more successful than my music ever has been. And so now, so that's where it becomes trickier because it was easier to think of it as like, you know, it was like this little podcast and it was this thing and I do this other thing and, you know, these two things. But now it's like, people are very unlikely to have ever heard of the 1am radio. And that was fine when people were also very unlikely to have heard of Song Exploder. And people, most people still haven't heard of it, but you know what I mean. But like, but more people know about Song Exploder than they know about the 1am radio and by like a, a significant margin. And that's where it starts to feel painful. Or, you know, people know about the people who love the West Wing might know about the West Wing Weekly and that's cool and all. But like when that's the reason why they know who I am, um, it starts to be like, oh, but I wish you knew who I really am, which is the, a different kind of person, a different, you know, I exist in the world in a different way in my own head than I think I do with people who interact with these podcasts. Yeah, you can see that manifest in like, even silly things like comments on Instagram pictures having nothing to do with either property. They're like, because it sounds like you, for sure, that doesn't sound like it's true, that you have such craftsman skill, but you still have an artist conviction. Do you know what I mean? Did you watch Mad Men? Were you a Mad Men fan? I watched a little bit of it. I, I never finished it. I watched only a little bit of it too, but there was, a, there was a moment in an episode that really killed me where Don Draper's second wife is going to audition for a, you know, audition to act in something. And her mother says about her to Don Draper later, like in private, she says, she has an artist's temperament, but not an artist's talent. Woo! <sighs> That really it resonated. That really hurt. I was like, God, is that me? <laughs> I mean, how have you reconciled in the last few years? I have not. <laughs> it's <laughs> an know? unresolved. Yeah. Yeah. I tension. mean, I think that's that's like the main existential dread that I that I walk around with is like, well, maybe I'm only good at lifting up and being in service to real artists' work. And, you know, and that's where my, my talent is. And I need to get over the idea that I am also, that I'm or, oriented in any other kind of way that I could be like an artist myself. Why isn't very good enough? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause I've had to make peace with certain things in my life where it's like, you know what? This might be the ceiling here. Yeah. It almost has a sense of mental survival. Yeah. Just kind of accepted where it is. Not like I'm posing that same ethic on you where it's like, ergo, you should. Yeah. But I was just like in the sense of you wish people could cut themselves a break sometimes in, in terms of like letting them off the hook of, I'm, I'm sure it's hard though to compare like the sensation of walking out to a sold out crowd at like the Ace Hotel Theater in downtown Los Angeles for a thing that's kind of yours, but you're more a steward of rather than a creator of. And then to have that in your head and compare with the lack of that for a 1 a.m. radio show or a Moore show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny. I've, we've, at Moore's actually did play a sold out Ace show. But, oh, okay. But as an opening act. <laughs> so it's a similar kind of thing. But even that. Yeah. That the people in charge of that show and the headliner, it was enough and they thought you were terrific enough to put you as an opening act mm -hmm. for that show. <laughs> but it wasn't quite enough. It's, it's, it's not the same. But, you know, I actually do think that I have. I do think that like I have gotten to a place of uh, emotional maturity or whatever you want to call it to a place where I've realized that it actually is okay. I think for, for a large part of my life, 
I had this feeling of like, if I can't be a genius, then why even bother? And that has been like an enormous source of writer's block. And it's been the reason why I haven't made another record in nine years. Um, but I think I'm, I think I've now gotten to the point where I'm like, eh, I just like it and I want to, and it'll be fun for me. And so I'm going to do it, but it took a lot to get there. Let's take a break from Rishi's sandpapery voice, and we'll be right back with more Inside Voices. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Inside Voices. When we left off, Rishi and I were talking about music and the creative paralysis he had about making it. Podcasts have ended up being a double-edged sword for Rishi because while it may have taken a little bit of time away from the music, it also gave him time and the distance he needed to fully enjoy just writing a song again. I've been so far removed from when I was, when like making music was my life that I just really miss it. And I miss it so much. Like the, the longing for that as to be part of my life has now surpassed the insecurities and dread of feeling like that I wasn't good enough. And then now I'm like, well, the stakes are high enough on, on the, just the feeling of missing it that I want to do it. And I don't care. Yeah. So it seems like a dominant emotion now, now towards that stuff is like wistfulness and nostalgia, even for the time in which that was like, where you were living and breathing. Yeah. I'm now far enough away from the time when making music was my career. Because when I first started doing it, it wasn't my career. And so I just never relied on it as like my income and my my living, my way of living. And, you know, I was trying to build up to, to get to that po- point. And then I did. It's actually a really miserable, for me, it was a really miserable trap to get to the place where you are successful enough that making music is your job, but also not so successful that you never have to work again. Like you have to work at that. And so you have to be thinking about, you have to do this calculus about like turning your art into your way of like paying your bills. And, and maybe you'd make one decision if that wasn't a part of it at all. You know, you'd make a creative decision or something like that, but because you have to pay this bill and you have to think about like, well, what's the thing, you know, just, just the fact that it would think about it, that there'd be a consideration at all felt like a little bit of a poison that I had to swallow. And so, you know, between 2007 and 2014, 2015, basically like the, those are the years when I was like a full-time musician, like that was what my, my living was. That was sort of always swirling. I think I was a little bitter about Song Exploder in some ways because it kept me from making music, like t- in terms of just the amount of time required. 
But the thing that it allowed me to do is have a different kind of day job. Like I created my own day job and now I've lived for several years with that as my job. And now like if I were to go back to music tomorrow, it couldn't be my career. You know, I just have to start so far back. Uh, I wouldn't be able to pay my bills with it. And so that actually like gives me some sense of freedom to be like, well, I could just go make a song. It's not, I don't have to worry about it being good enough to like pay my bills next month. Yeah. You've fallen out of that middle ground of like in between it's doing nothing for me or I'm a superstar. So like returning to it now, since you've fallen out of the middle, now it is like there is a liberty and freedom attached to that where it's like, it can be anything I want it to be. Yeah. That's yeah. got to feel good. It does. It, it's, it's nice. Actually, the other thing that, that really helped me with it is the process of, um, I've been baking, you know, I started baking cookies last summer, which is a new thing. I, I never, I, mean, I always loved cookies, but I never, knew, I never knew how to bake. I always felt like baking was something that was like out of my, my reach. Like I'm, I'm an improvisatory <laughs> cooker. Yeah. Um, chef. <laughs> yeah. I would not say chef, but like, you know, I'll take whatever the things are in the fridge and on the shelves and like whip something together. And I think it's pretty good. And baking, even just like simple things, I would just be like, oh, there's so many steps and rules and where's the creativity, you know, like it just didn't feel creative. And so, because as you're like, okay, just a recipe to me felt like follow the rules and you will get this intended result. And, and, and I was like, well, where's the surprise? Like where it never felt like anything that appealed to me. I wanted to have like some kind of experience with cookies that was creative, but I just don't know what I'm doing. So I decided, so I decided last summer I was going to just like, I was just going to like muscle through it and learn <laughs> how to make like really basic chocolate chip cookies well enough so that I could like understand it so that I could, I, I, I thought like if I got to a place that was strong enough foundationally, then like obviously people come up with new recipes for baking all the time, but they have to be like so good and they have to understand the stuff. And I was so far away from it. So I just was like, I'm just going to try it. And then, and then once I nail that, I'll start to be able to experiment. So I was trying to fast track my way to it. And, and so after like a few weeks of it, I started to be like, okay, now I'm going to, I've nailed that recipe or not nailed, but you know, whatever it's, fu- it's competently passable. executed. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I'm like good enough like close enough. I'm going to change it up now. Like, what if I throw this in? What if I throw this in? What if I change this? And, uh, <laughs> I like got to a place where like, every, that would be what I would do every Saturday. I would make the dough Friday night and then I'd bake them on Saturday. And there were two things that one was like, because I knew it was happening every week. Like if I didn't, if like one of my flavor experiments didn't work out I'd be like, all right, well, you know, I'll try something different next week. And in an even more microscopic level, some of the cookies would be a little weirdly shaped or some would be be baked on like the top rack instead of the bottom rack and they the heat wouldn't be distributed as evenly and so some would be a little like underbaked or over, whatever you know but like some would be really good and i'd be like okay great i got i, I got that right something it all turn out okay somewhere in that time period last summer i started to think about making music again and i started to think about it in this kind of way where i was like like part of the reason that it was so hard was because I had felt this pressure about if I wrote a song, I was like, it's gotta be great. It's gotta be awesome because otherwise, why am I doing it? You know, this, this, the little women question of like genius or nothing. And like, I'd play like one chord. I'd be like, well, (laughs) that was it. That's all it took. Stupid. (laughs) G what an idiot. 
and put the guitar down and mm-hmm. walk out. Like that would be, that's it. Like, so, uh, anyway, I, I started to feel like, I was like, well, I could think about it. Like cookies, like I can make one. And if it doesn't turn out, okay, I can always try again next week. Nobody's expecting anything of those cookies for me. Like they have zero professional, I have no professional attachment to them. They are not a part of my identity. And, you know, so if they turned out terrible, that's fine. Making podcasts has actually given me this, like a little bit of an escape route from the tyranny of making music. Cause now I can be like, well, it sucks. And it's also fine that people don't even know that I make music because now I can go ahead and try and make music again. If it's not genius, it still doesn't mean it, it might still be worthwhile to me. And I'm so glad Rishi that you brought up cookies as a central metaphor because that's how I've been thinking about podcasts recently truly in the sense of not unlike I don't know why we were synced up with this I know we did text and like exchange recipes on some stuff back last fall I started just trying different recipes every week like okay maybe I got the snickerdoodle down let's try a ginger molasses you've had them I know I remember that uh, let's try ginger molasses. Okay. And now let's do like an almond, uh, freezer cookie. Let's do a sea salt, caramel, chocolate chip. And, and it was something where I was such in the groove of trying all these recipes and, and just when to make use of, of my home kitchen and then bringing them to places unprompted, not like as a potluck or anything, but just like we're hanging out or it's game night or yeah. whatever. And like, oh, I brought some cookies. And then, and the effusive praise was always like such a nice gift for me to receive from other people. Cause it's not like people were expecting it. Right. And I did start thinking about making shows and making podcasts that way, because uh, I think sometimes people who come from other mediums or are so proficient in other mediums or art forms do have this perspective of disposability with podcasts and stuff where it's like there's a new one every week or every couple of weeks it's an audio format it's free so what's the value of it and who you know just essentially who cares and I started thinking about a lot of my own work in the sense of like yeah but some people do and they say hey that was a really nice cookie thanks and just even that idea of like is that enough the praise for like a nice cookie yeah because it's like even if they don't eat it it's only good for two weeks then they get stale then you gotta throw them out and make a new batch and so there's like a a, almost like a a cycle of just never-ending chances with it where like like what you were saying with music of like well if it sucks i can try it again yeah and i've started thinking about like the risk v reward of that, of like, my identity is not cookies, but I enjoy making them and yeah. I enjoy it when people enjoy them. And it's actually been a nice sort of salve or peace I've been able to give myself to think about it in that way as like just tiny disposable gifts. Yeah. That for some people, you know, and then every now and again, someone says, that was the best cookie I've ever had. That cookie meant so much to me. I'm like, wow you were just supposed to eat it and like have it be gone. But then to have like another kind of reaction, I'm sure reception and feedback you've gotten for shows you've done where it's like, man, I didn't think about it that way when I was, you know, obviously I was trying to make it as good as I could, but then to get something so generous in return is so meaningful to me. Yeah. What you're describing to me is basically low stakes right? Like a cookie is low stakes and you're comparing it to a podcast episode and you're saying a podcast episode is also low stakes. And, you know, part of that is like volume, like part of the, what gives it the low stakes is you're going to make 
two dozen cookies, right, or or more, and you're going to put out two dozen episodes of a podcast in a year or more, you know. So each one, yeah, okay, you don't have to dwell on it. But like, you know, I've made four albums in my life so far, and so the the stakes feel really high because maybe I'll only get to make a couple more. But that's entirely up to you, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I mean, there there are things. So or or like say like films or like novels. Like there are things that there like I think of an album or I have so far thought of albums like that, you know, where they're these monumental pieces of work that take a lot of time. There are definitely people who put out, you know, an album a year. Some people even put out more than one album in a year. I'm just curious about the really high stakes project. Yeah, like the difference between baking cookies or building a house. Exactly. Times when I've felt most satisfied in my life is when I've been able to do both. When I know that I'm working on something really big and long-term and something more epic, uh, but that's that can be a long process with its own vicissitudes. And then in the meantime, being able to do these sort of small stakes things to kind of like keep feeling like I'm making something and you know, getting the like dopamine hit of that satisfaction. I think that's important. And I think that's one of the things too, that I'm excited about, like making music again, is to be theoretically working towards something larger while also, you know, it's a collection of songs. The songs can be smaller. You can, you know, write a song every day if you want. And uh, the fact that it's a low stakes proposition and is that unsatisfying? Yeah. Where's the big, like the larger stakes thing, I think, right. Mm -hmm. Is if the episodes are the small stakes, then maybe like the entire show, the conceit of the show, the title, you know, like having a podcast as opposed to a podcast episode, mm -hmm. that's where the stakes are bigger. I actually think that maybe the key is to think of the high stakes, big projects also as cookies. <laughs> Go on. Even if they are quantitatively, in terms of the amount of time and effort required, much larger projects, these things that, that I'm calling high stakes things they're still made up of a series of steps you know and and essentially they're just an accumulated like a just a bigger you could also think of them as just like a bigger batch of cookies and if you thought of it that way maybe that's actually what it takes to like not have writer's block or not have an existential dread about what that means like if you could think of it in the same in the same terms so basically not have a qualitative shift between high stakes and low stakes and just a quantitative one where it's like well instead of making 12 cookies i'm making 120 but mm -hmm. it's still the same thing mm -hmm. that's how you get to those bigger projects yeah i think i think that's fair and that's probably a process you're having to go through yourself now with music because the thing i ask other people who do struggle with like whatever not even financial but just like creative satisfaction or am I okay? Am I doing nothing with my life? Or what am I? It's just, it maybe this is like a nihilistic question, but I hope it's an optimistic one. It's just the idea of what can you live with for today, for what you're going to do and the people you're going to interact with and hopefully treat with kindness and respect and dignity and the work you're going to put out and the work you're going to dedicate yourself to. What is it that you can live with? And then what is it that's not enough? If that makes sense. Because there's some things like, in some ways, you haven't been able to live with it or you haven't lived well with it. Some of the kind of tension you felt between being a musician who's not known for his music, but known for platforming other things. So that's not something you can live with, which is why you continue to do it, I think, which is like harder. It's like it 
it might be easier for you to triple down. You're like, well, actually, I'm going to have nine podcasts. I'm going to go like start a network or I'm going to go do this. But there's still something inside of you that's like, yeah, but at the same time, I can't really live with that. And I think that's okay. And it's good to be in tune with, with yeah. yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think all, I think if like business were a bigger motivator for me, then maybe I would want to do something like that or I would be more oriented that way. Concurrent to working on Song Exploder, Rishi had been developing a television game show. It ultimately did not go anywhere, but Rishi still had a great experience working on it with a producing partner and friend, Joshua Molina, who also just so happened to have been on The West Wing seasons four through seven. It wasn't long after this experience that Rishi started looking for another project for them to do together. And so I pitched him the idea of like, what if we did a West Wing podcast? I never asked him about the West Wing <laughs> as much as I loved the show and he was on it because I didn't want to be that guy, that friend. Um, I always wanted to be cooler about it. <laughs> I was like, well, this would be a way for me to finally, like, we could actually talk about all this stuff. Ask yeah. him about it for three and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have all the, you have the inside scoop. Yeah. And then I went and I did your, my first episode of Gilmore Guys. Oh, yes. Do you remember that episode, by the way? I do. It was plagued with technical difficulty and we started an hour and a half late. It was this brand new studio in a home in Los Feliz situation. It was not good. And uh, we would, I think at one point you even suggested, you guys want to go back to my place and record in my home studio? Yeah, that's right. It's so embarrassing. It was our first time meeting, too. was that's bad right. experience. Uh, that's, I remember it really well. But yeah, but you came on Gilmore Guys and you became like a recurring guest, essentially. We'd have you on at least once a season after that. Yeah. And I think, and I made a, and I mentioned, I said something about like, oh, my friend, you know, my friend Josh Molina from the West Wing. And I said something, I talked about the West Wing Weekly as an idea on there. And I think you didn't even realize that I was being serious about it. Cause I was like, I was like my friend Josh Molina. <laughs> and you were like, well, he's all our friend, really. Like, I think you thought I was talking about him as oh, I don't like remember. A, the, oh, like you were making, like you were doing a bit in that like you. I was like, like our friend Meryl yeah. Streep or yeah. whatever. Like I was just talking about this person. You're like, well, all our friend. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, I'm, I was actually. <laughs> yeah. Serious about it. We actually it. have a relationship. Yes. <laughs> and oh my we were, gosh. And we had been, anyway, I'm pretty sure I talked about the idea of the West Wing Weekly being a podcast that I wanted to start or was trying to start when I was on your show. Eventually, I wore down his resistance. Because he had a lot of resistance to begin with? Yeah, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do it. He wasn't sure if he wanted to talk about, you know, some, a show that he had been on, you know, years ago. And he also wasn't sure. You know, he wanted to make sure Aaron Sorkin was cool with the idea of the of the thing since they're, they have a relationship as well. But eventually, he got on board. Yeah. But, but it, to me, I felt like Gilmore Guys had been, was like kind of like a proof of concept um, that, that it would be fun. Yeah. And I truly, and I don't mean this in a self-deprecating way, but that's how I think of Gilmore guys too. In some senses, it's like, Hey, it's proof of concept of West wing weekly <laughs> as much as it is its own show. It's its own thing. It's like totally different aesthetics with different goals and aims, but also like, it was like Gilmore walked so West Wing Weekly could run. Like it, 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 it does feel like that to me. Cause truly, I remember, do you remember? Yes. Cause, cause you looped me in from the beginning and you sent me a cut before anything was out or maybe before it was even announced uh, that you were doing it. And you graciously let me listen to it and said, like, oh, any feedback you have. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly, an episode by episode look at the award winning show created by Aaron Sorkin. My name is Rishi K. Shirway. And my name is Joshua Molina. 
And now we should go on to our, I think, our West Wing qualifications, and then we should get to it. Yeah. Okay. Well, my main qualification is just that I got you to do this podcast with me. Uh, other than that, I just, I love the show and I've memorized probably every line of dialogue in the first four seasons. See, this is going to be, I think, an interesting dynamic, which is that I was on the show and I think I've seen probably every episode of it because I was a big fan of the show before I got on it. But I saw all the episodes essentially, I think, when they aired and never again. So now I'm doing a rewatch for the purposes of the podcast, and I'm enjoying it all over again, and it's all sort of new to me. And I took that very literally, and I said, oh, it's really great, and like had all these positive notes, and embedded within all the positivity was like, I, I said, I think the note was about you and Josh's chemistry. You guys are like, NPR funny. That's exactly what you said. You said, you said, it's not funny. I mean, it's like NPR funny. It's NPR funny. <laughs> and uh, cut to sold out theater tours across the <laughs> world. Yeah. Egg on my phone. Not egg on my phone. I still, I still maintained the fact that it, I thought it was a great show from the beginning. I thought you could say, I still maintain that I think you guys were NPR just NPR funny. funny. <laughs> it just turns out NPR funny has a pretty, you know, has, has a decent audience when it's in the context of the West Wing. And for the record, I don't take offense at NPR funny. Yeah. Josh probably would. <laughs> as, well, don't as tell him. As an actual, you know, comedic actor. Right. The West Wing Weekly went as well as a television recap podcast could ever hope to. With a devoted audience as well as participation from cast and crew of the show, like Martin Sheen, Allison Janney, Lin-Manuel Miranda was on it, Aaron Sorkin too. But for Rishi, the far more rewarding aspect of the show had less to do with celebrity and more to do with curiosity. I mean, for me, actually, the thing that made it really exciting was the fact that we got both the people from the show and then the people outside of the show because like the major conceit of that podcast was for me was like the west wing had always been this sort of launch pad for learning for me you know that that they somebody would say something about something in an episode and i'd be like oh is that real or you know i'd, mm-hmm. I'd learn something what's the about, census yeah exactly yeah. you'd learn something about the government or you'd learn something about an I- issue or piece of legislation or where it came from or something and and it was a way to kind of feel like you were still a little bit in school while still just like watching a TV show, you know, not really doing work. And trying to be able to ca- carry that spirit into the podcast was really exciting for me. So like the, my like my favorite moments were times where we got to really like cross over. And in the last season, in the in the seventh season, there was an episode where we discussed the live debate episode um, with we we talked about the quality of what was being said as if it were an actual presidential debate and the our, you know doing it as like a roundtable discussion but our roundtable talking about these two char- you know talking about Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda's performance in character talking about them were uh we were joined by the two people who had been in charge of debate for Barack Obama and Mitt Romney we were sort of raising the stakes of the podcast by having these real political minds on it and also raising the stakes of the TV show in some ways of being like, well, they were going for this. What happens if we look at it with that intention? And, and at the same time, it was just fun. And it also felt really West Wingy because here were these two people who in 2012 had been political opponents. And now, you know, seven years later, they were talking like friends because they'd actually become friends. 
I've enjoyed getting to know Beth over the years. I teach a class of sometimes of undergraduates at Georgetown on the history of presidential debates. I've had Beth come in and speak. I teach a class at Harvard Law School some years about law and lawyering and presidential debates. I've had Beth come in and speak. And, you know, her wisdom and experience and perspective is unmatched. And I will tell you that students, both college students and law students, reacted unbelievably powerfully. And, you know, campuses being what I what they are, most of my students are Democrats. And they really enjoy hearing from Beth and learning from Beth. And I do, too. Ron is always the consummate host in making sure that we are talking about issues that and trying to find common ground. And again, I think it's really important that we all remember that that's what we're doing. You guys are displaying a refreshing civility of which there's a marked absence these days in politics. I know. I feel like I'm in the West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That to me I love felt like the culmination of what the, or not the culmination, but it felt like a encapsulation of what I wanted from the podcast. So the fact that we had moments like that sprinkled through the series was really, really satisfying for me. Yeah, because it wasn't just a... Uh a hollow reunion exercise of remember this and like, oh, look, there they are again. And it wasn't just a fun, funny, more than NPR funny chat show (laughs) uh, with people and guests that it was also, I feel like the best shows are the shows I gravitate towards the most for podcasts. They're like a couple of shows in one. Like obviously they're not like schizophrenic in their identity, but that you can just build in different things. I I felt like you did such a good job doing that. Like whenever there was an issue that would come up on the show and then you would talk to a real life expert about the issue or, or like the, the priests that you talked to about abortion or, you know, people of faith who are pro-choice and examining that from the like, yeah, kind of calling out and playing the given circumstance of the reality of the thing. So it could like function like that. And I'm sure you got a, a wide variety of listeners because of that. So it wasn't just like, well, I like TV or I like the political process generally. Yeah. That you could like make a tent large enough for all those people to gather in. Yeah, that was the nice thing about the about that particular show. Because there are not a lot of TV shows that would allow you that kind of springboard. You know, there like the fact that it, it was a show that dealt with politics, it gave me the ability to kind of, you know, w- w- the way that everybody is anyway you know, having their informed or uninformed opinion about politics and politicians or whatever, I could actually engage with that world with a modicum of professionalism by having this podcast, you know? So in addition to getting to talk about how a scene was lit, it was the only way that I could somehow manage to find a way to call up a Senator and say, tell me about, you know, banning assault weapons because this happens in this episode and they talk about it this way, did they get it right? You know, and then we can actually talk about it. That was really. I was going to, I think you already answered it too, but I was going to ask you about this working theory I have that every show is actually about something else. So every podcast, whatever the stated goal or like the subject matter premises, there's also another thing underneath it. And it sounds like what it was with West Wing Weekly was curiosity or civic education. Yeah. Yeah, truly. Yeah. That was actually about that. Yeah. In 2020, Rishi started his new podcast, Partners, a show about people who make things together. You know those adorable interstitials in When Harry Met Sally where they interview the couples? Basically, if that was a podcast. 
We both are big personalities. Sometimes we can butt up against each other just space-wise a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. One other thing Wendy taught me. Sorry to interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) While you're talking about me interrupting. (laughs) Case in point. (laughs) I'm Samin Nasrat. I'm the author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. I'm Wendy McNaughton. I'm the illustrator of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Samin Nasrat is a chef, writer, and teacher who is called the next Julia Child by NPR. Wendy McNaughton is a New York Times bestselling illustrator and graphic journalist. I'm just trying to make something that is, like, nice. And that's a, it's a little bit different than with Song Exploder, where I'm also trying to make something nice. But, you know, like, there's just something nice about making a show that's about relationships. Um, this is really essentially making a show about love. The real thing, the real connective tissue of that show is like the, these are two people who love each other in some fundamental way. And, uh, and that's just, that's really nice. Now, do you feel like with something like that, where it is so much more personal, it's not really, this is the first like major podcast project you've done that isn't directly attached to someone else's IP. It's direct, it, It's attached to people. Yeah. And the people are of no because of things they've done. Yep. But you're creating a space that doesn't really exist with those conversations and interrogating those relationships and letting them go off and bicker and laugh and fight and have fun together on mic. Does that feel different from the other shows that have come before? Yeah. I mean, it feels like a less safe proposition Song Exploder is already kind of unsafe just in terms of the fact that like people who like one artist who's on one episode might not like the artist on the next episode because the genres might be completely different um, or they just don't like that particular, you know, song or whatever, you know, even though the overall concept of the show is pretty unified or like very tightly unified. It's about one song and it's about the creative process behind it. And we use the stems to illustrate the blah, blah, blah. That show still, you know, still has that disparity from episode to episode where you're not sure what's going to happen and if people are going to tune in or not. West Wing, it was a lot safer because it was just sort of like, do you like the West Wing or not? And, and so, But at least with Song Exploder, there's like, well, are you interested in the creative process? Are you interested in how art gets made? Are you interested in music? And then, you know, more fun, are you interested in this specific artist? But with Partners, it's really uh, dicey I think to ask everybody, you know, to just expect that people, I hope people are going to listen to every episode, but it's like, are you just interested in the way two people relate to each other? I am. How do you internalize feedback stuff when you get positive or negative stuff? Uh, I ignore all the positive feedback. Truly? And just focus on the negative feedback. (laughs) (laughs) The only ones that matter. Really? Pretty much. You've never been able to, even when like someone writes you a long email or a DM. We got, like, some, we got some really, really nice emails yeah. for when the, as the Westman Weekly has ended. But it does, it, it really does feel like there I'm like, it's hard to take it. Yeah. It just feels like, yeah, okay. You love the West Wing and, you know, and, and we just gave you a vehicle to continue to enjoy this thing. Yeah, and I think that might be true of some people. And certainly I've experienced some of that. But also, too, I feel like I'm trying to have a better relationship to that stuff so that receiving it, obviously you're not going to be a jerk. You're always going to be polite to whoever you're talking to, but that you can receive it in a way that doesn't invalidate someone's experience. Because there's a way someone could hear that that is 
condescending or like, mm. no, I know I like you. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to make someone feel like a fool, yeah. right? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, and I know it's really hard to just like take that. I feel like that's one of my main aims on this show though, is for people I talk to, to fully feel good and proud of what they do. Not because of like, oh, well actually it's about this. It's not actually about this. So like, I'm a part of it, I guess. Like, but in all like respect and humility, be able to take in the things that they've done and be proud of the things they've done in the ways that they've used their voice and made the shows that they wanted to make. It's hard though, but I feel like you almost just like not even as a kindness to yourself, but to other people, I've, I've had to do that with people where it's like, I, I, I did an interview a couple months ago where uh, it it was a it was a woman working on a project for her thesis. But at one point, like during a break in the interview, and we were like wrapping things up, she did say like, "Oh, I just want to thank you. I, I was listening to this show when my mom passed away, and that really got me through stuff." And I've talked to people where they've said, "I hate that. Don't give me that. That's too weighty. That's too much for me to bear. That's like a that's a bad exchange and 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 how dare you to put that on me, oh, blah, 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 blah. And my reaction is more like, man, I don't know what more you would want. Like absolutely. No, I that is the like that stuff is incredibly meaningful. That it's like, oh, this stupid thing that I did. <laughs> Like helped you in some some moment of like actual pain. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest thing that that I could hear. You know, because like I think the low stakes of it. You know, the fact that I didn't become a doctor or a lawyer as my parents would have wanted. You know, like that plagues me a little bit. And I think about ways I could have done good in the world if I had gone down a different path. And and how like sort of like the low stakes, like meaninglessness of what it is that I do, even like what, if it's like the thing that I believe in, it's like, oh, and I'm like, you know, what I really want to do and just like make songs. It's like, who cares? You know, like, like what is the, you know, but of course at the same time, I really love art and I know how much it means to me. Yeah. So for, anyway, for someone to say, to say that, you know, like we've gotten some really nice emails and messages from people uh, especially about the, the West Wing Weekly, you know, where they were like, yeah, oh, like I had a really hard night. My mom was at the hospital and you kept, you two like joking, kept me laughing throughout the whole night, you know, and I had one and, and I'm like, that's, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's real too. And I wonder if, if uh, maybe your reticence with some of that stuff has to do with like, if it would loosen your grasp on what the true aim and goal is if you get more of a grasp on podcast stuff, if that makes sense. So if you identify the most as musician and your ambition and your purpose is that if you take in too much of the positivity with podcasts, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Huh. Is that a, is that a wild theory? There's some pieces of positive feedback that like, that like I'm able to hit that, that hit me right in the moment. And I feel good about, there was one that I got, uh, a tweet that I got about the first partners episode from someone who said I was, I listened to it and I really enjoyed it. It took me several minutes before I realized that you were not in the episode, that you would cut yourself out and turn the whole thing over. So we could just be immersed in the relationship between these two people. And I thought that was really nice. And I, and that made me feel great. I was like, you recognize what the intent was and why I did it. And, and like it had the effect that it was intended compliments about the craft i feel i get a, a lot i have a lot of pride i feel yeah for that but but ones 
for just being a guy who talked, I'm like, man. <laughs> I mean, I I'm only NPR funny at best. Okay, so <laughs> what's what really like? What praise do I really deserve? Yeah, I would I would elevate you to at least Gimlet funny now. <laughs> Rishi K. Sherway, I like your voice a lot. Thanks, Kevin. I think it's really good. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Thanks, Kevin. It's Thanks, aspirational. Kevin. It's enviable. A lot of people agree with me. A lot of people like listening to it. You've done a good thing, kiddo. <laughs> and your mother and I are proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Your mother and I are proud of you. I just don't know your mom. Uh, my dad, actually, when I told him that you were coming over uh, to interview me, he said... He said Oh, tell him we said hi. Oh, great. Well, tell them I say hey back. What a nice thing. Yeah. (laughs) Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Hereway. Thank you. (laughs) Rishikesh Hereway has a sandpapery voice, and you can listen to that voice on his podcast, Song Exploder, The West Wing Weekly, or Partners, wherever you get your podcasts. Once more, I have no clue where you get your podcasts, but I'm happy you figured out how to get them at all. Inside Voices is produced by Steve Allman. Our theme music is by Pam Aturi. I've been your host, Kevin T. Porter. Thanks for spending time with us today on Inside Voices. That was a HeadGum Podcast.